Hi, everyone. Thanks for turning in to the last episode of the season. I will not be on this episode filling in for me. Uh, guest hosting for the show will be Kyle Gothy, who I do Kyle and Nick on film with, and also his reviews are goatfilmreviews.com. He'll be joined with Brian Eckert, a previous guest of the show from Deep Focus Review. And today they're going to be revealed their top 10 best films of the year. So enjoy that. Thanks for listening. The show will return in February with some returning all guests and some relatively new ones. Thank you for supporting the show. Thank you for following the show on Twitter and Instagram as well. We greatly appreciate it. And now enjoy Kyle Gothi and Brian Eggers' top 10 lists of the year. Okay, welcome back to the St. Paul Filmcast. I'm one of your hosts, not Nick Palatichuk. This is Kyle Gothi from GoatFilmReviews.com and Kyle and Nick on Film. With me today is my co-host, Brian Eggert from DeepFocusReview.com. Um, we both have Patreons, so check those out. Check out all those links down in the description. Brian, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Kyle. How are you? Uh, I, I am fantastic. We're both up. We're awake. This is take number two for recording, so I'm very excited <laughs> to uh, finally finally get to see the, the the rest of you go with the voice on Twitter. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Um, yeah, it's good to, good to finally meet uh, you, and I'm a, I'm a big fan of your your uh, YouTube channel and your your website, so um, yeah, it's great. I'm super excited to dig into this list. All right. You're going to see a lot of friendships starting here today, I think, because we, we chat a lot on Twitter and uh, we both have what, what I think is so interesting about our list today. And what I'm guessing is that you and I tend to agree a lot on the positives and the negatives, but it's the amount of positivity and the amount of negativity where we tend to like disagree. So I'm, I'm curious to see what our two lists look like. My guess is two crossovers today. That's what I'm going with. Okay. Um, I don't think we're going to have a lot of like true excitement on on either front but i'm guessing two do you think two <laughs> yeah i think uh i was actually looking at your letterbox list oh, trying to sneaky. like like <laughs> like predict what would be on your list today and um and yeah i think we'll probably have two crossovers maybe one fair enough fair but, enough uh yeah i think it'll be good uh well real quick before we jump into our top 10 i guess just give me your thoughts on the year for 2021 in film what does it mean to you yeah, so it was a difficult year. The the first um, you know ten months really were, were kind of a slog, like with mm. with just a few outliers and a few um, you know, I guess the the Oscars really set a precedent because it, they were part you know twenty twenty and part twenty twenty one. So mm. there were some movies that, for instance, in the in the international film category that that were nominated at this this year's ceremony yeah. where. Um, they're on my top 10 list this year because they just decided to pick movies that were from 2021. So it's, it's already this kind of weird, you know, combination of, of, of movies that were released technically in 2020 and 2021. It's just a weird year. Um, and then, you know, it was a slow year, you know, for the, for the first 10 months and really over the last, you know, December and the end of, end of uh, November, it was just an onslaught of great mm -hmm. movies. And I feel like I feel a little bit almost bad because everything I'm seeing is like good. Like if, if you just visited my site right now, you'd think I just like everything. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it goes, it goes from like, you know, ones and twos at the beginning of the year to like fours and fives. And they're like, well, this guy hates everything. This guy loves everything. <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so yeah, it was a, it was an interesting year. Um, and I, you know, asked me a month ago and I would have said it's, it's an, a very average 
year for movies, but right now I'm like, there's a, there's just a glut of, of great movies to, to go see and to there's that still have yet to be released in Minnesota, to be honest. Yeah, there are a few. And, and I think we'll, we'll touch on those a uh, little bit later on here as well. Um, with, uh, some of the ones that we're still like looking forward to for 2021 that we have yet to see. Um, yeah, for me, it was, is very, this year felt like a return to form. And I agree with you. I don't know if the slate of movies this year is as strong as in previous years, because things just got jumbled. There was a lot of movies that I think studios didn't think could make money. So they just released them during the pandemic anyway, because who cares at this point? Sure. Um, whereas we saw a lot of big tentpole movies get jammed in this year and that's why this year almost more so than any others i think a lot of the spectacle stuff has ended up on my higher end of the list just because i i got back to the movies after 15 months without going i i don't think i've missed 15 months in theaters since i was born and i probably didn't miss it then (laughs) sure yeah uh i had you know you know to be honest i had the opposite reaction where Mm. i think the pandemic for me was like this detox where i i realized how many you know blockbuster hollywood movies i was seeing Mm. and how you know, few, I guess, international movies I was writing about because partly because, you know, they don't always come to Minnesota and you really mm. have to f- find them. But fortunately, uh, if there's one good thing that came out of the pandemic, it's all these uh, like Kino Marquee and, you know, Criterion mm. Channel and and all these other streamers that um, are, are acquiring these movies and, and putting making them available. So I feel like personally I made a mission to, uh, see fewer blockbusters in part for you know just feeling comfortable in a crowd i just mm. don't feel comfortable in a crowd at this point um and staying home and watching a movie from iran or watching a movie from france or, or wherever uh because i just found that frankly more interesting uh mm. this year and um I, you know i was always the guy who was you know the first they're on opening night for any Marvel movie. Mm-hmm. And um, I think after Endgame and just the pandemic after that, it, it like I said, it was just kind of a detox where I, I just sort of got that out of my system. And while I'm still going to see those movies, uh, eventually, um, I don't know, they just don't have the same special place in my heart that they did mm-hmm. two years ago, which is, uh, for me, it's a real paradigm shift mm-hmm. uh, just in terms of my, my viewership. So, um, yeah. I'm sure our, our list will be different in that respect, um, but that's okay. That's awesome. Yeah. See, I moved to a, an area that's got a theater that maybe has like three people in it on a given afternoon, so oh, really? I feel very comfortable going into the cinema. <laughs> I'm probably safer there than in my own home at that point. <laughs> Great. Um, all right. Well, you know, let's just jump right into our top 10 of 2021. Brian, why don't you jump us off with uh, your number 10 pick? Sure. Um, so real quick, before uh, before. I reveal my number 10. Uh, I just wanted to list a couple of runners up because I felt that there was a glut of, like I said, a glut of great movies this year. And I'm just going to, I'm not going to say anything about them. I just want to list off the movies. Uh, The Amusement Park by George A. Romero, which was finally released. Uh, The New Candyman. Uh, The Card Counter by Paul Schrader, I thought was amazing. Uh, Come On, Come On, which was on my top 10 list at at some point while I was making making this list. Uh, Dune. I really love Dune, but it was... Well, I, I won't say anything about Dune. Uh, <laughs> Judas and the Black Messiah, which is one of those movies that was maybe a 2021, or, or excuse me, a 2020 movie. Um, the Harder They Fall, No Sudden Move, uh, Pig, which was, again, I, on my list at one point, uh, Shiva Baby, St. Maud, Spencer, and Summer of Soul. Those are all movies that I think people should see mm-hmm. and um, are, are pretty outstanding. So, um, But as I sat down to make my list... I couldn't ignore a movie that I probably watched three or four times 
uh, was very vocal about on Twitter. Uh, it's a movie that I literally called people to say, you need to go watch this right now. Uh, I think I told you to go watch this yesterday <laughs> uh, on Twitter. It's it's Psycho Goreman, which mm. g- given the rest of my list is very much an outlier. Uh, but I have, to admit, I have to be honest that it, it, I didn't have more fun with any movie in 2021. Mm. It's such a uh, weird um, experience, just a weird movie. Uh, that's definitely not for everyone. It's going to be the kind of movie where if you're super into, you know, cheesy, bad eighties movies, if you're into just copious amounts of gore, you'll think this is a good movie or, and funny. Um, it's, it's basically a, a commentary on what in the 1980s would have been rated PG. So mm. if you watch a movie like, say, Beastmaster from, I think, 82, this is a movie with tons of gore and tons of you know, nudity and, and I, th- I think some swearing in there, but it, it's also rated PG. Uh, so Psycho Goreman is this movie where it's like a family movie with just that just happens to have tons of gore in it. Mm. Um, it's ridiculously funny. It's about uh, this these two kids who are... Uh, kind of weirdos i guess who who find an intergalactic hellraiser type uh entity uh and get control of him and sort of just have it do their bidding Mm. um so if you can imagine kind of like little little psycho children (laughs) um Mm. getting control of a monster uh you know that's the 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 very thin plot uh, and they just get in sort of comic situations. There's, you know, a musical interlude. There's these this random uh, intergalactic plot that they have to have to solve. Uh, but I, I spent most of the you just spend most of the time, you know, laughing at what's going on, uh, appreciating the very practical effects for the most mm. part. Some of the throwback CGI, um, intentionally bad CGI, I would say. Uh, and there's just a, there's just a energy behind it all that is very infectious. It's not like ironic or referential in the way that some horror films are today, where it's relying on other movies mm. to to um, y- you know define itself. It's its own thing. You feel like it just sort of you feel like it's a movie that you just never rented from the 1980s. No, yeah. And you've just found it, and oh boy, I've discovered something special and weird <laughs> and. Um, like I said, I probably watched it three or four times, and it was f- as funny every time that I watched it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not even a horror movie, I would say. It's more of a comedy. Like the violence is there for comic effect, which which sounds maybe crass and awful to somebody who's who's averse to uh, screen violence, but uh, I, it's a <laughs> it's a hard film to describe. Uh, <laughs> describing that that it's that it's full of gore yet funny, um, but. It, if you've ever watched an 80s movie and laughed all the way, 80s horror movie, and laughed all the way through it, um, you'll know what I mean. Yeah, you're speaking my language. Um, Yeah, I got a lot of uh, visual imagery from, like, Fido in that film. Sure. Uh, You know, the Boy Meets Zombie film, or even Monster Squad with, uh, you know, like, the children befriending Frankenstein's monster, you know? And you get kind of that feeling about it where it's, you know, a a, a child and their dog, a kind of a movie. Yeah, um, yeah. It's funny that you mentioned too. It's it's like an '80s movie you missed out on because it's been sitting on my shelf for months now, uh, unopened. <laughs> so, <laughs> so maybe maybe tonight, um, and then you know I'll have to like call Nick and have to like change this list up. But um, yeah, I did miss out on that one, and it I was surprised to see the kind of fervor for it because it does look like a movie that you watch and write off. Yeah. Um, but I'm very much looking forward to checking it out. Awesome. 
Uh, so real quick, I had one honorable mention because it was on my list until last night. Uh, and then it got bumped off. And that was the film Nobody starring uh, Bob Odenkirk. So, uh, yeah, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it, but it's a fantastic gritty 70s, 90s action throwback film that I had just so much fun watching. I expected this thing to be trash, um, even even though it kind of has that John Wickiness to it. Um, but I was very, very surprised by it. And it got bumped last night. And I felt comfortable bumping it because there's another film on my list that has similar aesthetics to it. Uh, so my number 10 is going to be a film from Edgar Wright, and it's probably not the film most Edgar Wright fans are going to be talking about this year, but it's the one that surprised me the most. It's the only documentary on my list, and that is The Sparks Brothers. Uh, this film, in less than two and a half hours, turned me from someone who had heard the name Sparks and who had heard one song but couldn't actually say it was a Sparks song into a diehard fan. Uh, this movie changed the way that I listened to music for this summer because I listened to Sparks all summer long. My wife told me, please, Please stop. You're ruining our Spotify. Um, and I, I just couldn't get my my mind off of it. It's a fairly simple documentary. I mean, it goes from beginning of career to now. But it the way that Edgar Wright both celebrates the band, but also ponders why they aren't a bigger thing than they should be. It's like the most pop culture non-pop culture movie because they never entered the pop culture. And that's what I think is so fascinating about it is that you hear these people that it's like they've discovered... It's like they've discovered Psycho Gorman and they're trying to t call their friends and tell them about it for sure. decades. You know, uh, this band just kind of pervaded people's livelihoods, but was kind of just it was like a secret. You know, it was the magazine you kept under your bed that you didn't want people to know about. And now it's kind of hitting a, a bigger stride because of, I think, their involvement with the film Annette that came out this year. Um, and I had a choice. I could pick one Sparks movie, either Annette or the Sparks Brothers. And I think the Sparks Brothers is the movie that I uh, that changed my pop cultureness for this year. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'm in the same camp. I had uh, had seen Sparks on uh, Roller Coaster, the movie, without knowing really who they are. Uh, and like you, after watching the documentary, I uh, listened to every one of their albums mm -hmm. on repeat for months. Um, and I think this is a nice segue because my next movie is Annette. Oh, um, <laughs> all right. Uh, I absolutely loved Sparks. Uh, the Sparks Brothers documentary. And I think mm. that was like the groundwork for me falling in love with Annette. Mm. Um, that movie uh, is so strange and so uh, singular that, and I don't even know that I, that I understand everything that happens. Oh, I certainly uh, don't. <laughs> right. Uh, I know that there are a lot of Snow White and the Seven Dwarves references for some reason. I know that there's, you know, some Pinocchio imagery with, you know, the, the marionette, Annette, the, the child. Um, I know that I'm a big fan of uh, Leos Carax, the director. He, he made uh, Lovers on the Bridge. Uh, if you ever want to see just a completely ambitious, fantastic movie, uh, that's the one to see. Uh, he also made uh, Mouve Sang, which is, a, which is another uh, Juliette Binoche um, romantic movie that features a, um, a uh, skydiving scene, like <laughs> actual skydiving scene, Juliette uh, Binoche. But um, yeah. Uh, written and uh and the songs by sparks annette is just a, a fantastic odd arty movie with two incredible performances by by adam driver and marianne coltiard and i think um it stuck with me so much in part because it was so weird and in part because it was so indefinable uh but there are also songs that just get wrapped up in your head mm -hmm. um like any spark songs, I think they just have yeah. a they have a, a rhythm to them or and just a repetitiveness where they're just 
kind of uh, repeating a mantra type line in, in each of their songs. Uh, so may we start the beginning, mm. you know, that first song or we are so in love that song. Um, they just get stuck in your head. And, um, you know, the, the movie actually is, is very difficult despite being a musical uh, and despite being um, kind of an odd movie with, you know, a, a CGI, half CGI, half marionette child in it, uh, which if you haven't seen the movie may sound really, really strange, I guess. Um, but uh, it's actually an incredibly dark, serious film mm-hmm. that uh, deals with some heavy issues of, you know, reality versus performance. And, uh, you know, Adam Driver plays a stand-up comedian uh, who's kind of a shock stand-up comedian, mm-hmm. I guess. And, and Marianne Cotillard is, I guess, the artistic opposite of that, which is which is opera. And, um, and yeah, they have a very volatile relationship. There's death involved. Um, and again, the birth of this child is very, very, very strange. Um, but yeah, it, it really stuck with me, not only for its strangeness, but just the artistry of like every moment uh, from moment to moment is is so well composed uh, by Leos Carax. Uh, it was it was really like the validation I needed to 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 justify my my last month of of sparks uh (laughs) listening i guess like that was just the culmination like it just felt like the cherry on top and so um yeah for me that was i think we we are both having similar experiences with sparks probably this summer and um for me that was that was just the the end all be all of where i wanted that relationship to go Mm. That's funny. Yeah, I spent way too much of the summer looking for Sparks albums at Half Price Books. Um, and everywhere I went, basically the only one I found was the soundtrack to Annette. So <laughs> oh, yes. um, for me, yeah, it came down to the choice between the two. Um, I think I think Annette hinges itself a little bit more on seeing the Sparks Brothers documentary. I think that the documentary yeah. makes Annette better because you it, they're a unique kind of a band. They're a unique, unique kind of a performance piece that... I think general viewers might need prep for. Yeah. And I say that with like with all the love in the world for them. Like I just think people need to go into it knowing that this is not a traditional musical. Um, and in fact, the catchiest parts of it are single lines versus whole movements of the song. Right. You know, I can't tell you. I was walking down the street the other day and just asking if we're ready to start yet. And, right. uh, you know, I mean, it's just the bits and pieces of it that just stayed with you. Annette is the, the creepiest, most beautiful marionette cgi puppet child in the world um and yeah it's it's a movie that i maybe would say i i didn't feel like the same impact as i did with the band but they're both fantastic and i think they're a great double feature if you've got five hours to put away because both are quite lengthy but yeah um, definitely solid films for both of them absolutely um okay so my number nine is probably the best christmas horror movie that no one is calling a christmas horror movie and that is pablo lorraine's spencer mm-hmm. Um, the Princess Diana movie that I was not really sure how to feel about going into it. I really like Kristen Stewart, but I was thinking to myself, you know, she visually has that look, but can she play the role? And I'm, I'm not trying to be critical of her, but she's just known for certain other roles in her career that keep unfortunately holding her back. Uh, I was not a gigantic fan of Jackie. I liked the movie, but I just didn't feel like ever going back to it again. I was like, okay, cool. Moving on. Uh, Spencer is better having seen Jackie, because you get what Pablo Lorraine is trying to do going right into it. There was a lot of people at the film screening for it that did not like this movie, because I think they wanted a Princess Diana 
biopic. They wanted the, the VH1 behind the music, uh, step by step from her birth to her death. And this is a this is what I like about my favorite kinds of biopics is it's a story within someone's life. And it captures the tone and the feel of the life instead of the specific events. Kristen Stewart, I think she gives the best female performance of the year. Uh, it's a movie that I, I'd be shocked to tell you that my favorite scene in the movie is between Princess Diana and the head chef in the basement. That moment when he tells her, you know, they, they don't see you the way we, we see you. We don't talk about you behind your back when you're gone. We don't say mean things about you. We say what we love about you. And I think, man, what a heartbreaking moment to have someone whose time in the spotlight is dwindling and dwindling as her connections to the crown disappear. And she's forced to go through what should be the most celebrated holiday. And she just can't find joy in there. And I think that's why it has the best needle drop of the entire year at the end of the film. Uh, Yeah, the Princess Diana story in Spencer is just, it's wonderful. It captivated me all the way through. Um, And it's, it's, terrifying like just imagine being stuck in a giant mansion with people that all don't like you and want to see you suffer for christmas it's the classic christmas story <laughs> right right uh yeah i really loved i really loved the movie as well um i'm a, I'm a big pablo lorraine fan um I, I i i do think it's a better movie than jackie although i did really like jackie um and i i'm a big fan of Kristen stewart and i do, I do think it's one of her her uh, better performances next mm. to maybe personal shopper mm. um but yeah, yeah, it was very close to being on my list. I think it's a, definitely a movie that I'm going to watch again. Uh, so yeah, that's a, that's awesome that it was able to be on your list. Yeah, absolutely. All right, let's number eight. What's yours? Uh, my number eight is The Power of the Dog, uh, Jane Campion's um, western deconstructed revisionist western uh, that looks at um, kind of the the mythos of of the western uh it takes place in the 1920s i believe and by that time you know the the wild west was already well established in myth and painting and literature and already some early uh silent films and um you know by that time there was an expectation of what a western male should be and benedict cumberbatch in his performance um completely embodies someone who's trying to be that. Um, and it, it's a movie that's uh, over two hours and over that two hours, everything you think you know about the characters at the beginning uh, unravels and becomes something different. Um, it's very similar to Campion's uh, The Piano in the sense that it's about a uh, a woman and her child who are kind of introduced into this ve- very male-dominated world. Um and they have to exist within that and subvert it where they can. Uh, in this case, the woman uh, played by Kristen uh, Kirsten Dunst is um, an amazing performance, uh, a very fragile performance. Uh, you know, she cracks up a lot, and and uh, you know by the end is just kind of in ruin. Uh, and then her son is played by Cody Smith McPhee, who um, very much like Benedict Cumberbatch's character is not what he seems at first. Mm. Um, there's been a lot of commentary, I guess, about this movie uh, and what the ending means and what really happens in the ending. Um, I didn't find it uh, hard to interpret, I guess. Um, and for me, it was very clear cut. Uh, but maybe I'm taking that for granted or my own opinion, my own interpretation. I think it's for, the director's intention is what is the intention of the ending. That's at least what I thought seeing the film was. What is the director's intention with the final scene versus what does it actually mean? That was just what I thought, I guess. Yeah. 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 So, I, I mean, I, I found 
without spoiling anything, <laughs> I, I found there to be a very precise reading uh, to it, and it was just people are so used to having everything spelled out for them mm-hmm. as, as opposed to it being in visual terms and w- the reveal at the end is, is very much in visual terms mm-hmm. and not stated for you. Uh, but I love that about it. I love that um, you can read into it differently. Uh, the, the direction is just masterful that, you know, it's a, it's a beautiful looking movie. Uh, so well acted. I imagine that this will be, you know, a major Oscar contender uh, come, come next year. Yep. Yeah, and we we will be covering that for season four of Kyle and Nick on film. The episode is is in the can; it's ready to drop next season. Awesome. So, um, so look forward to that coming up soon. I'll just give my quick thoughts on it. I think it's a movie that's great, and during any year where I'm putting it on there, it could have hit my top ten very easily. It just came down to a like, where's my heart at with the film, sure. and it was a frustrating watch, which doesn't inherently make it a bad movie. It was just a frustrating watch because. I think Benedict Cumberbatch gives a great performance of a person that you absolutely loathe. Um, you know, and, and I think just the way that he's, and of course, this is a, a sign of the times in the 20s. This is a person who'd be very different in 2020 versus the 1920s. Um, and and his performance is that kind of like frustrating. You know, you just wish that he was in a time period and in a place where he could be the person he wants to be instead of hide behind this facade. Yeah, I, I mean, to that respect, I I did loathe him for about <laughs> an hour and a half of the movie, mm. but I think once you see what he is, true, uh, and we're being very ambiguous here, uh, <laughs> but once you see what he is, I, I felt he was more tragic and I had a little bit more sympathy for him in the mm. end. And um, maybe he gets what he deserves, I don't know, but uh, I did I did find it tragic mm. uh, as opposed to a justified conclusion. Fair enough, yeah. So go watch... Watch us, yeah, and then, and then put your thoughts out on Twitter because we, we want to hear more about what your thoughts on. Because I do think the ending will be the most divisive uh, part of the film and one of the more divisive endings of the year. Uh, all right, so my number eight is a movie that I – it's a Ridley Scott movie, and he put out two bangers this year. Um, I think one's a little bit stronger than the other. But uh, this is one that actually made me go back and watch for the first time the film that kind of inspired its technique, and that is The Last Duel. I had not seen Rashomon before watching The Last Duel, um, but uh, we'll definitely talk about it a little bit higher, I think, because yeah. I'm pretty sure it's on your list higher. I haven't heard it mentioned yet. So. It is, yes. All right, so what's, what, let's go on to number seven. Uh, my number seven is There Is No Evil, okay. uh, which is an Iranian film by uh, Mohammad Rasulov. Um it's an excellent director. Uh, I would strongly encourage everyone to just kind of seek out his filmography. Um, this is a movie that he had to smuggle out of Iran uh, because of its subject matter. Uh, it it critiques the um, and I talked about this before on on this podcast actually, <laughs> uh, but uh, it, it's a movie where he critiques the the Iranian policy of of having to um, serve in the military. And while you're serving in the military. Uh, you may be forced to carry out executions and someone who, you know, according to a, a state rule basically may have to kill someone. And that's a very uh, psychologically damaging process as you can mm. probably imagine. And so this is a four part anthology that sort of dissects that, um, you know, you get an image of, of someone who actually has to carry out the executions, someone who tries to escape uh, having to do that, mm. someone who's been living with that uh, for years and it's, you know, really screwed them up and someone who um, is related to someone who, who ha- has had to do that. Um, and, and just, you know, I, I'm usually not a huge fan of anthology movies if only because 
they always feel a little bit disconnected. You know, the individual episodes mm -hmm. always feel in, uh, disconnected from one another. And usually the connective tissue between them, if there is an overarching story, is maybe not the best. Or And it just seems like a like a thin uh, a thin narrative through line to hang hang several stories. Um, so you never feel like it's a like it's a complete story but just thematically and uh formally it's so well composed and just devastating over and over again in each story uh and you feel like you're watching like a full feature for each uh for each story hmm. uh it's a little hard to find um it's on mubi right now i discovered last night um so i would highly recommend everybody um subscribe to mubi if you're not already subscribed and um and check that out. It's it's a a beautiful, if devastating movie. And anthologies, you're right. They're very tough. And if only for the fact that I think anyone who watches an anthology, they may not always they they don't love everything. They don't hate everything. But there's always like parts of it that just don't feel like they're like accessing you in their amount of time that they have. And so it's a tough sell because. I, I like to have at least some sort of framing device connecting what's going on so that I feel like there's a reason for this anthology. I've seen some recently where a direct, uh, a producer will go and grab a bunch of random shorts and just jam them together to, to a movie. And it's like, there's no, there's no cohesiveness. It's like making a mixtape. You've got to have, you know, shorts that bleed into one another and actually have a thematic connection. So that's interesting that, uh, you found one that actually hit a top 10 level with being consistent throughout. Yeah. The way the story is handled, it feels like one story sort of without having any kind of narrative like or characters that go from one story to the next. It all sort of bleeds into it, into one another just naturally because of the themes. Um, so yeah, I'd, I'd highly recommend it. Oh, okay. Wow. All right. Well, let's move on to my number seven, which I believe is on your honorable mention list. And this is one that this movie would not be on the list if it hadn't gotten greenlit for a sequel. And I mean that with all the love in the world, and that's Denis Villeneuve's Dune. Um, I read Dune for the first time this year in anticipation of this film. I'd seen the David Lynch one in college, but uh, I was imbibing substances that made the film watching experience different. Uh, so this time around, I was actually able to read the, the book, go see the film. I think this is a very strong adaptation of the book while taking enough creative liberties to start moving us in the direction where a sequel could pick up and go with. But the biggest criticism I had for this film is that there is no way I can enjoy this movie not knowing that there would be a, an ending. You know, compared to other films that had not gotten greenlit, I think of the the Stephen King adaptation, It, from a couple years ago. That first film at least ends, where if they never made a follow-up, okay, it has an ending, it's on its own. Or you get these other ones where they shoot films back-to-back. -back. Okay, but we know there's another one coming. I spent a good couple weeks after seeing Dune going, I really loved this movie, but I just can't love it if I don't know where it's going, because no film that has the first half ends in such a in such an unclimactic way. But I did find myself consistently enthralled with it. I love the cast of characters here. I love the moving parts. It's a story about imperialism, about invaders, maybe white invaders, uh, coming in and, and taking things. But it's done in a way that makes our white invaders seem like white saviors. And there's a lot of elements at play where, you know, we, we don't know the full story and how Villeneuve is going to tie this up in a second film, um, even knowing where the book goes, it's one that I'm consistently curious how he's going to find a footing to end this story. I mean, it could be a complete disaster with the second film. I don't know. But this first one, for two and a half hours, I did not think about time. Uh, I was just involved in these moving pieces. It's very much a space 
Game of Thrones. People call it the Space Lord of the Rings, but Lord of the Rings is a little bit more consistently adventure. This is more betrayal and uh, plotting and planning. And I think having the, that planetary movement, Denis Villeneuve keeps everything enthralling. It's a visually stunning movie. And it's a world that I would have spent more time in if the film had been three hours, if it had been three and a half. I would have just kept going. Um, I don't entirely think the movie needs to be in two parts, but I will say that for it, I didn't have any flaws watching those two, that entire two and a half hour first half of the book. Yeah, I'm in the same ballpark. I um, I really love the movie, but I felt like I can't I can't allow myself to get emotionally invested in these uh, until I know <laughs> there's a sequel and until I know. Uh, that the sequel's good. Mm. Um, I, even knowing that there's a sequel, uh, I kind of, I, it could have been on my list, but, but, uh, I need to see that sequel. And I imagine if the sequel's as good as the, as the first half, that this is going to be one of the greatest, you know, sci-fi series of all time. Mm-hmm. Um, it's so well made. Uh, I'm a huge fan of the book. I've, you know, I've read the book a couple of times. I've, I, I kind of like the David Lynch version. It's a little, it's a little, I don't know. It's a little Lynchy for me. I, and I'm a fan of David Lynch. I just, I, it's a I, weird combination. It is a weird combination. And I prefer, you know, I prefer the source material as is, as opposed to filtered through, uh, Lynch's, Lynch's view. But, um, in any case, I, I thought it was a very, you know, selfless adaptation on Villeneuve's part. And, uh, yeah, I, I if the second half is, is good, I'm, I'm going to love it. Um, but like you, I just had some reservations about committing to that experience mm. um, initially. Yeah, I was I was shocked to say that I came out of a film with that big of a cast, thinking, "Wow, Jason Momoa is just great." You know, like, <laughs> and I think that's the funny thing is I've spoken to a number of people that have seen the film, and everyone had a different character that they took away, thinking, "Wow, that so and so was just fantastic." Um, I'm hoping that with the the 4K release of Dune, that we'll get some more of. Uh, uh, Baron Harkonnen in his suit, I guess. Uh, Stellan Skarsgård walked around with that suit on as much as he could. He danced in it. So I'm hoping we get to see some footage of that when that, that home video release comes Dude out. Dude Gagrill. Yeah, there Gagrill. you go. Yeah. <laughs> Who would have said we were looking for that at the end of the year? Um, all right. Yeah. What's your number six, I believe, right? Uh, my number six is The Last Duel. Oh, um, So now we can talk about that. So, um, yeah. Why don't, why don't you start? You. Uh, so I had not seen Rashomon, but I was like, I knew of the Rashomon style. I knew of the Simpsons joke, if you will. Um, so I was excited to see the film. I think doing a movie like this is one of the toughest types of story to tell because you're telling it three times, you know, and, and in some cases you tell it more than three times, but being able to look at uh, Jean de Carouge's story leading up to this duel, we get that tease at the beginning. Like we know where we're headed. The title is called The Last Duel. And then we get we get kind of, our jump back and follow through his story, follow through um, our other characters involved. And I found that each time we got a little bit more information, a little bit of a different viewpoint that allowed us uh, to, I guess, place our cards. And I, I was constantly moving my chess pieces around watching the movie uh, and including that third piece, that third element where we, where we see the wife's story is one of the most heartbreaking retellings of a story I'd already seen, you know, where everything is altered a little bit. I would have liked a little bit of that with the second story, the Adam driver bit. I feel like that gives us a bit too much information about the truth of what's going on instead of his perspective of the truth. But I do think that amongst the three stories, the three interpretations of this, these events that led to the duel, it's just a fascinating movie to watch. And it enthralled me for two and a half hours. I didn't get bored at all. Yeah. Um, you know, in terms of perspective, yeah, I'm a huge fan of Rashomon. You know, I, that's something I saw back when I was uh, undergrad in, in college, and I've I've got the you know Criterion poster on my wall <laughs> in my living room. Um, but uh, th- this was a f- 
a movie that I wasn't expecting to be this good. Yeah. Uh, I saw it, you know, a couple of weeks after it came out. Um, it had got gotten kind of middling reviews, like positive, but, you know, nothing so enthusiastic, I guess. Uh, it, it was a bomb at the box office. Nobody went to go see this movie. And when I saw it, it was it was fascinating. I mean, mm. the first story um, focusing on Matt Damon's character, you know, is kind of the typical... Uh, Ridley Scott medieval action <laughs> yarn yeah. and he's kind of almost commenting on his own style I think where you know this is the gladiator st- uh, style where he's a warrior who's all in it for honor and um, you know integrity and, and he's going to fight for his his honor and defend you know defend you know his idealism and he's got these romantic ideals um, and typically women are on the sidelines for those mm-hmm. stories and that's exactly what you see and then the second story, you see kind of this Don Juan type character who, you know, played by Adam Driver, who's very good at seeming smart and justifying his perspective mm. until you realize, oh, this guy's a, this guy's an absolute creep. Mm. Um, and frankly, so is Matt Damon's character. Um, by the end, you, you realize that, you know, this this male dominated world has has marginalized women to such an extent that their stories are never being told uh and particularly with the the Adam Driver segment i found it was so fascinating that he is so entrenched in his perspective that he doesn't even consider what he's done a, a rape yeah um right down to the right down to his death yeah he, he's he's not going to admit that he did anything wrong because in his world you know, i'm he, wanted he, <laughs> i'm beloved right. he, he's chasing around <laughs> ladies at orgies and mm-hmm. and and they're behaving in a way that is in his mind analogous to someone who's being raped by him mm-hmm. um it, and it's such a it's such a brilliant choice to immerse us so much in his perspective um that yeah i was just really taken aback by 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 how entrenched it was and how smart it was the screenplay by nicole hollifsoner and 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 damon and affleck is is just incredible um it's a little i would say that maybe it's not as entrenched in perspective as rashomon mm-hmm. um rashomon is very clear that there is no truth um whereas i think you know the the introduction to the third chapter of uh, of Jodie Comer's story is, you know, that kind of lingers on the on the words the truth, and you kind of mm-hmm. realize that you know the woman's perspective is you know probably how it really went down. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think Rashomon is a little bit more ambiguous about the truth, and yeah. and and a little bit you know kind of more devastating uh, in the sense that there is no real truth, mm-hmm. and that it's all perspective, and it's all just kind of chaos out there. Um, Whereas this had a perspective that, you know, the, the stories that are being told, um, it, it's an entrenched feminist perspective in that the stories that are being told are by by men predominantly and men who are in it for honor and men who are in it for, for God. And mm-hmm. you see, um, you know, Matt Damon's character you know, get, getting cheered at the end in kind of the shadow of, the, the, of Notre Dame. And it's such a... Um, such an indictment, I think, of that perspective, and a lot of the movies, frankly, that um, that Ridley Scott has made, um, mm-hmm. in, in a way, um, 
so I thought I thought it was a, a very bold choice to make that movie for Ridley Scott, and um, and really just a great movie that I hope more people seek out because it, it's such a such a fascinating ride. It's a movie where I just like kind of kind of you know got into at the beginning and just more and more just sat up in my seat and was like, oh, this is great. This yeah. is getting great. Oh, this is great. It builds really nicely from yeah. just a solid action drama yeah. to something more than that. Uh, and going to what you said where it's you know male-dominated, I mean, two-thirds of our story are male-dominated. Two-thirds of our screenwriting team are male-dominated. Yeah. So it's a film that kind of sets you up as though it's going to be completely male-dominated and then, yeah, like you said, lingers on that truth, kind of giving us a hint to what Ridley Scott believes, if you will. Uh, going back to yeah, the, the one thing that would have risen this film up a few steps higher is, unfortunately, the, the rape scene itself from uh, Jacques Legree, uh, Adam Driver's character's perspective, I felt that it gives a little bit, it gives a little bit more uh, menace to him. I, I would have liked to have seen it, like how he viewed it in his head, a little bit more displayed on the film. That's what would have risen it up a couple more notches because I think we get a like a pretty like correct viewpoint of what he's doing in that scene, um, as opposed to what he thinks he's doing in that scene. That's I guess maybe the one kind of takeaway that would have risen it up a few more spots for me. Um, yeah, and I I think that that. I've read some reviews and I've read some feedback that you're just watching the same story over and over again. And I think that pe yeah. people, you know, some of those choices are, are subtle and mm -hmm. you're watching it maybe not completely, you know, the form isn't changing to, to immerse itself in, in the perspective of the character. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yes, when you're watching his version of the rape scene, it, I guess as viewers were, we're aware we're, of what's going on. We're predisposed on. maybe to right. how we view it too. Uh, after watching this again, I actually just rewatched it a couple of days ago. And the, I, I kind of felt the way that, that you did the first time I mm. watched it. Like, eh, maybe you know they could have done that differently. Um, but at the same time, I think that there are just these there's that parallel scene where he's at this, this orgy with Matt Damon and, and he's chasing a, a woman around mm. the table and she's saying, no, no, no. And, and he lifts her up and puts him up, puts, puts her on his shoulder and puts her on the bed and kind of flips her over in the same way that he does with Jodie Comer. And it's, it's mm. just that sequence repeating yeah. itself mm -hmm. um, in a fascinating way. And she's saying no, but it's, it's the way she's saying no is very, very subtly different. And, um, it's a tricky scene and it's a it very is, yeah. very triggering scene for somebody who would be triggered by something like that like it's uncomfortable to watch and you know squirm inducing um but but i think it's it's very uh it's very subtle hmm. and um i i think part part of what you're describing is is what as viewers were maybe projecting onto it That's like true we, too. we know what we're seeing it's hard to not see that when you see it exactly That's true yeah. yeah um but but watching it, having been through that already, watching it a second time, mm -hmm. I see that uh, what the, what the actors and what Ridley Scott was doing, uh, I don't know, it, it worked better for me on a on a second viewing. Yeah, I look forward to watching it again the way Ridley Scott intended on my phone. So um, yeah, yeah <laughs> I'm, I'm very much looking forward to checking it out a second time. It was one of those movies that stays with you, and I, it was one of the ones I was calling people like, go see this. It's tanking right now, yeah. and if you can handle it, because I do think having a film where the, like rape is the central argument at yeah. play. Yeah it tends to push people away a little bit. And I think, yeah, it's something where if you can't handle it, I can't tell you that you should go for it anyway. Right. Um, but it's a movie that if you can handle watching that, not just once, but again, uh, it's definitely a film that, that will stay with you for the thought provoking arguments it has. Yeah. Um, okay. My, my number six is 
uh, that that gritty 70s 90s action film that I feel like can at least hold a stone with nobody and it's a movie that uh, the predecessor to this film was very messy had great characters but then we get someone with a vision we get a big budget trauma movie with James Gunn at the helm my number six was the Suicide Squad uh, I was not terribly excited for this movie until I started hearing some of the great discussion happening about it online. It's not that I have anything against James Gunn. I, just, I really love James Gunn's horror work and the fact he keeps making superhero movies is fine with me, but I really enjoy those, but I'd, I'd rather see him kind of return to the, the slithers of the world. So to have him take on a movie that it seems like Warner Brothers was just do whatever you want to do, kill whoever you want to kill, except maybe one character who we know has to probably live. And he shows off in the first 10 minutes, like, yep, I'm doing exactly what I want to do. Uh, this movie, I've seen it three times now. I think every character in the film gets a beat, which is really nice for a stacked cast. This is a more stacked cast than than Guardians of the Galaxy or, or many of the other films that feature a, a team up. And everyone gets a beat where they get to have fun. Um, it's an enjoyable movie. It has that, yeah, that kind of like 70s, 90s grittiness to it where it's mean-spirited. You know, at times you feel you feel bad for the bad guys. Um, but then, they, you know, but then there's also moments of complete clarity where he showcases how even the bad guys view themselves as good. You know, the Peacemaker, the character by John Cena, who's the standout in the film, is he's a very bad person who believes himself to be the most righteous person. And I think he embodies what a lot of these bad guys are where it's, we're setting up a lot of people who we're not going to feel terrible if they die, but then we somehow start feeling bad when some of them start dying. And I think it's, it's a tricky line to walk and it just proves to me why uh, James Gunn, I kind of feel at this point, give him the money to make what he wants to make. You know, if he wants to keep doing this, I'll keep showing up for it. If he wants to go back to horror, I'll let him go back to horror. I'll give him whatever he wants to do because I just enjoy watching his twisted, angry vision. Yeah, I uh, I really like Suicide Squad. I'm I'm a little um I'm a little cool on the DCEU in general. Mm -hmm. Um there's been a few movies that I've liked. Uh Birds of Prey I enjoyed and um and Suicide Squad, the the Suicide Squad, I enjoyed. It was a, it was kind of a fun combination of, as you said, Guardians of the Galaxy and, and Slither, and it's you know doing a lot of the things that those movies do, just in a R-rated kind of more gleeful free freedom. Um, and yeah, I, I absolutely enjoyed it. I thought it was a lot of fun. Um, I I hope he you know. I'm kind of lamenting the fact that he has to go back to Marvel because he's going <laughs> to he's going to have a PG-13 limitation. The and, leash goes back on. <laughs> right, exactly. And uh so I'm excited for whatever he does after that, I think. I'm I'm still excited about Guardians 3, but um I'm excited more excited about what he does after that. And I, I agree. I think him going back to horror would be um would be fascinating. Yeah. Fun. Yeah, I would have I I would have been surprised to tell you that the Peacemaker series on HBO Max has my interest in the way that it does, but coming off of that film and just again, rewatching it again about a week ago, like I can't, I can't wait to see hit the playground that he wants to play in again, again, let him do whatever he wants. And I'm there for it. Is uh, he involved in that? Yes. Yeah, so he, he created, I don't know if he directed the whole thing, wrote the whole thing, but he had heavy involvement in the Peacemaker series. Okay. Um, so I, I will be there on January 13th when those first couple episodes drop because again, give him the money and let him do what he wants to do. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> All right. So that, that was our, our uh, 10 through six here. We're going to take a quick break. Uh, and then we'll be back with our top five films of 2021. 
Well, hello everyone. I am Billy Dees from the self-titled Billy Dees Podcast. You can find me on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, iHeartRadio, and many more of the best podcast networks. Join me for my commentary and interviews. Follow me on Twitter, really easy to find, at Billy Dees. I am Billy Dees. I'd love to have you listen in. And welcome back to the St. Paul Filmcast. Again, we're talking our top 10 films of 2021. Uh, thanks for joining us again. Let's jump right in with, what was it your, your number five, I think? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, we're going with your five then. <laughs> uh, my number five is Licorice Pizza, the Paul Thomas Anderson two-and-a-half-hour picaresque romantic comedy coming-of-age story <laughs> um, that's kind of a, an odd family affair, um, a family and friend affair for Paul Thomas Anderson. He's got, you know... Fr- kids of uh, uh of friends and and kids of other directors and he's got Leonardo DiCaprio's dad in there he's got a Spielberg kid in there uh he's got you know Philip Seymour Hoffman's son um it's it's a weird movie if you if you kind of look up how this movie was made uh you know he he went to his his art high school art teacher was you know the star of the film's mom uh just just a weird weird way that this movie developed. Um, so it feels like, as I said, sort of a family affair where Paul Thomas Anderson and just a bunch of friends are making a movie about seventies, uh, the seventies in, in Southern California. Um, it, it's, it's a, a strange sort of movie in that, uh, you know, it's dealing with, a uh, push and pull romance between a 25 year old woman and a 15 year old boy who's very uh the boy is very ambitious he's an entrepreneur he's probably a little bit mature for his age and uh the woman is uh immature for her age she's a little bit uh floundering um but the performances are just magnetic uh cooper hoffman is outstanding from the first shot on um elena haim uh from the band haim is um she's just magnetic throughout um outstanding performances across the board i i was really there's been a lot of uh a pushback i guess on this movie for for a few reasons one is the relationship at uh at the center one is um a character uh john michael higgins plays who um you know, he, the way he talks to his wife is not exactly, uh, is pretty, pretty racist, uh, accent that he's, that he's using. Um, and there's a lot of criticisms of, of kind of that, mm. uh, those elements of, in the movie. And while I agree that those elements are issues, uh, I think that Paul Thomas Anderson is so good at portraying a time and a place and using, uh, for instance, they they're using lenses that Gordon Willis, cinematographer Gordon Willis, used on like The Godfather. Mm-hmm. They're using technology and they're immersing us in in the seventies, and not telling the story from a twenty twenty one perspective, which I think is a mistake that a lot of period films that are made today use, where you can feel the twenty twenty one ness <laughs> in in the movie. And I think uh, Anderson is so immersive in the sense that he he knows how to tell a story that feels like it came out of the 70s and he knows how to make a movie that feels like it came out of the 70s and it's got this sort of magical Hal Ashby quality to it where you're just falling in love with an unconventional two people who who probably belong together uh in their own heads 
uh, but maybe not according to the rules of the world. Mm-hmm. And um, you just sort of fall in love with them and and their journey together. Um, I, I was really just transfixed throughout. I think it's the kind of movie that, uh, as you said about Dune, could have gone on for you know several hours, <laughs> and I would have just been fine with it. I'm mm-hmm. fine living in this world. I think it's fascinating, and um, you know you just kind of fall in love with the characters, warts and all. And um, as I said, I was just entranced. Yeah, I'm curious to see uh, when I revisit Licorice Pizza what my thoughts are because uh, myself and, and good old PTA, we have a bit of a, a diverging path, if you will. I loved Boogie Nights. I loved Magnolia. Um, and then for some reason, I just missed out on several films of his career and I kind of like came back to him with Inherent Vice, which I was very mixed on, on uh, Phantom Thread, which I, I still boggles my mind that people like the movie. I, I can't stand phantom thread i'm sorry to say i'm not saying you're wrong if you like it but i'm just saying i i can't understand um the love for that film but i was like you know what he's going back to the 70s which i mean i adore boogie nights and i love like i love films about the 70s that feel like the 70s uh and for the most part there's a lot of elements at play here that i really like i don't know if the entire finished film sits with me all that well uh the the central relationship it's not an inherently sexual one so that's why I felt like that the the kind of romantic angle between the 15 and the 25 year old is not pushed in a sexual direction so much as much as a like, yeah, you're right. He is older than his age. She's younger than her age. It's a film of a time and a place that where, where that kind of stuff was not as viewed as the, the way we view it now. You have to view it in that mindset. Yeah. Um, and then the in, incredibly racist character played by I was John Michael Higgins. Um I, I, I defend PTA's use of it because he's not saying that that's okay. He's showcasing a character through a character's unlikable qualities. I would argue that it's not funny. Like that, or, you know, like it, it kind of stands out as just like really not funny, but it does give you a sense of who the character he is, is in the film. Um, so I don't, I don't necessarily have problem with the issues in the film. And I think knowing that when you go into it, you have to understand, I think you have to see the movie to have a thought process on those issues um, because you have to see how they're displayed. And I think for me, this felt like an anthology that was jammed into a, a, a story because there are bits and pieces of it I adore. I think Bradley Cooper, people are going to talk about Nightmare Alley for Bradley Cooper's performance this year. I'm talking about Licorice Pizza. He is so magnetic and energizing for 20 minutes of screen time. I mean, he has as much time in this movie as he had probably in the trailers. Uh, he is he owns the screen during his entire sequence there. Uh, all those little bits and piece characters that show up in the last half of the film, those are the ones that made the experience for me more than the central relationship. Nothing against the film. It just didn't kind of like hit me in the same way that a lot of other people did. I would have liked to see actually just more more of those bits, the Sean Penn elements of the film. That was what really captivated me. Sure. And I kept wondering, where's our story going because there's a lot of elements of the Sean Penn thing that I thought would come back, and it doesn't. The so, film kind of leaves him. So the way I, I sort of viewed this was that you at the beginning of the movie, you established that there's the potential of this relationship. Mm-hmm. And then throughout sort of all these these anthology-type stories that are episodic stories that, that happen throughout, um, you're sort of chipping away at the other options. Yes. Um, mm-hmm. So... Elena Haim's character is has the potential to fall in love or, or be in a relationship with Sean Penn's character. Mm-hmm. Uh, but really, she's just an accessory to him. Yeah. He's got his own thing, and he's going to treat her just like every old man would probably treat a young woman in Hollywood at that time. Yeah. Um, you meet John Peters, uh, uh, Bradley Cooper's <laughs> character, and he's 
you know, making a pass at her. And he's, you know, a notorious ladies man um, who just, you know, is going after every woman that he sees. Uh, and it's, it, they mean nothing to yeah. him. Um, and basically, you know, through the course of the story, you realize that the only one who really cares about her and isn't going to take advantage of her and restrains himself from That's treating her uh, like an object is Cooper Hoffman's character. Mm-hmm. And I feel like the whole movie is an argument for them falling in love. And when they do fall in love and, or, you know, when they do come together in the end, it's so overwhelming. And so, and it feels so right because you've seen, you've seen what the alternative is. Yeah. You've seen all the other options available that are just not as strong. Right. Even Benny Safdie's character, who's, you know, who's a, who's a guy who's, you know, a a closeted gay man who, and politician uh, based on a real guy who, um, you know, would use her as an accessory. Mm -hmm. Um, you just you just don't see her being seen by anyone aside from this 15 year old kid who uh sees her from the first moment on yeah um and i find that so um heartwarming and yeah and i i feel like next to punch drunk glove it was maybe his and you know phantom thread was my favorite movie that year so uh, <laughs> and, uh, it, it feels great to be seen and i think that um paul thomas anderson making a romance is like I feel like he deeply understands what a what a meaningful relationship is, mm-hmm. and he's he's described that a few times in his movies, and this was one of the best. Yeah, and let me let me say too that you mentioned you know PTA getting together with his friends and making a movie is still better than Adam Sandler getting together with his friends to make a movie. Um, so we should note that yeah. I'm not I'm not calling into question his ability to have good friends, um, and I think. That that's exactly the way I viewed it too is like the options are dwindling and the options weren't that great to begin with. Right. You know, like but we start to see like, yeah, Sean Penn doesn't realize she's not on the motorcycle. You know, uh John Peters is insane uh, in in every sense of the word we've heard that from stories from kevin smith and and numerous other people in the business. Uh what I think what I think of with the movie is that it it sounds like PTA 5 minutes in is like, okay. So these two are in love. And then trying to convince you for two hours that like, no, no, trust me, this, this is the only way that this relationship is going to work. Cause look at all this other stuff. You know, I, I definitely see that at play. I just found myself less interested in the central relationship in the last half of the film, because I was so enamored with these secondary characters that I just like wanted to see their stories kind of and how they interplayed. And maybe that's a problem with just the fact that they got, they got some serious, you know, heavy hitter supporting players that I felt stole the spotlight a little bit from what I should be focused on. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I like the movie, and I think with with like Magnolia, I gave it about the same score as Licorice Pizza the first time, and then I grew to love it. Whereas Inherent Vice, I have not revisited, but it has about the same score as Licorice Pizza. So like, there are movies of his that I think I will grow to like on a second view, and ones that will dip further on a second view. So I'm really captivated with like, where's it going to hit? next time I see it. You should watch Inherent Vice again. It's great. I, I know. I got the book. So I'm going to read the book and then I'm going to go back and check out the movie yeah. because now I have both of them. So it's like they can't just sit on my shelf and make make space, can they? <laughs> so, <laughs> all right. Very good. Very good. Uh, my number five is the movie that knocked off nobody last night. It's a movie I caught. I waited for weeks to see this thing. I had to go get a COVID test. I thought I might have COVID when this movie came out. And by the time that I knew I could see it, I just didn't have a free time to go catch the movie. It's another horror film, another legacy sequel, and another one that I hate how they just use the same title over again. But I did love the movie, and that is Candyman from Nia DaCosta. 
Uh, I really love the first Candyman movie. And part of the reason I avoided this new one was just, I'm kind of a completionist. I've got to go see the other ones. And so I watched Candyman two and three and this new one last night. And thank goodness the new one ended on a high note. Um, I really enjoy Nia DaCosta's directing in this film. It is a gorgeous movie that doesn't necessarily go for the kill shot. You know, it's a bloody movie. It's a messy, bloody, disgusting movie. But it is, it's never like the focus of where the camera is. And that's nice for me because I'm not a person who inherently gets scared by movies. I'm more fascinated with what is this horror movie? Am I having fun and am I seeing something unique? And I had fun and I saw something unique. I think Yahya Abdul-Mateen II was a great lead. Um, I like that he's just kind of finding himself in all these different directors' pockets as a tool because he is so versatile in his performance in the film. We kind of know where he's going a little bit the entire movie and it didn't take away from my enjoyment. I like that it ties itself to the original film while also giving kind of a state of like, how uh, how culture works with myth and how culture develops myth. And I like that it kind of kind of pokes some holes into the original film to to bring something else that's unique to it. Um, I just like I like everything it added to the mythos and how it worked about that kind of like inherent disappearing trauma that Cabrini Green represents. Uh, it was a fascinating movie. It's not too woke. Um, if you haven't if you think it's too woke, you haven't watched the first movie. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm a big fan of the first movie, uh, but I will would agree that you know it's it's watching it now. It's a little um, a little frustrating to watch a you know what is essentially a black story told through uh, the eyes of Virginia Madsen. Mm-hmm. Um, but I am a big. I do think that the sequel is is better than the original, or not the sequel. The the remake is better yeah. than uh, the original. Uh, it, it was a great film. It, it was on you know my list for most of the year uh, until it got bumped off recently, but uh, <laughs> I did love it. Uh, I, th- I thought that, um, yeah, it was an, it was entrenched in a black perspective, which is necessary for this story. It's the first uh, time it's happened with the four films, <laughs> right? Which is a little depressing mm-hmm. uh, actually to think about. Um, so I felt like for the first time I didn't have any, you know, kind of wincing moments. Like, I don't know that this is, you know, this director is the right person to be telling Mm -hmm. the story. This is absolutely the right director and absolutely the right screenplay. Uh, the performances are all great. And, um, yeah, I, I thought it was maybe the most intelligent horror movie that came out this year. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I, and what I really enjoy about it is, you know, having watched all four of them pretty quick succession again, um, first film, blonde, white woman, lead character second film blonde white woman lead character and in fact that the, they had to change the poster for that film because the oj simpson trial was happening during its release and they didn't want to have another movie that featured or they didn't want to have another movie that very focused on a black man being the killer of white people like they were like trying to avoid that the third film again blonde female white woman uh and and what i really like is that we actually get a blonde female white woman in the movie as the librarian when he shows up and it almost seems like she's insisting upon the story a little bit asking him questions and he just ignores it like nope this is my tale (laughs) and i really like that they there's kind of a tongue-in-cheek quality to it it's a lot of fun it's one of those movies that when you watch it a second time you look for things that you probably miss like i had moments i rewound last night because my wife was sitting next to me was like oh my god what's that going on and like it was still kind of like a a general solid horror movie with a lot of layers to it. So, yeah, absolutely. I also love that, uh, you know, that the deaths in the movie are very intentional. Like there's nobody, 
there was a lot of arbitrary death, I think, in the in the first three. And mm-hmm. I think everybody who who gets it in this movie is somebody who, in the film's morality, kind of deserves it. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I thought that was fascinating. It was a well thought out movie, yep. um, and uh, I found myself not having really any issues with it, which is surprising, uh, given that it's very you know rooted in in morality and race and, and representation and myth and a lot of kind of heavy ideas that it really plays with in, in a, in a smart way. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Yeah. Let's go to your number four. Uh, my number four is nightmare alley. Um, a movie that, uh, was completely fascinating. Uh, I read the book earlier this year, actually, uh, before, Criterion released the 1947 uh, film uh, starring Tyrone Power. Um, great book. I, I couldn't believe what I was reading. It's, it's a book that, you know, just feels like it was born out of, you know, just acid and, and alcohol. And um, an acid, I mean, like corrosive acid and not not, not the drug. <laughs> um, it, it It's just a movie that's, that's or, or excuse me, a book that's, that's uh, ugly. Deals with with abortion and and con artists and just bottom bottom of the barrel human beings. And the movie captures that in an oddly beautiful way. Mm. Uh, Guillermo del Toro is the right person to tell this story and kind of takes takes that book, uh, gives it a faithful adaptation in terms of story. Um, he's following all the major story beats of the novel, so it's faithful in that sense, whereas the the earlier film wasn't for obvious reasons. Um, and gives us sort of the cinematic fantasy where he's doing, you know, he's he's showing us a circus world, which he's obsessed with, uh, you know, f- freak shows, and showing us um, con artist, uh, art deco, uh, uh, presentations and and uh, it's all this very beautiful stuff that he's he's giving incredible production design to, um, and just giving it all a polish, and yet also you're seeing all the grime and all the disgusting elements too. Mm. So it's these these contrasting worlds of, and it's kind of entrenched in the theme of the movie that uh, you know are, are you a monster or are you a man? And I think that you know by the end you're, you you kind of realize that that uh, there's a monster inside of all of us and the world is just a is just a veneer over kind of a rather ugly (laughs) ugly place at times which is a very cynical attitude for uh you know a multi-million dollar hollywood production um but i think it's the kind of thing where he he got best director and best picture for shape of water and he could do anything he wanted and he decided to make the most cynical movie that he's probably maybe ever made um yeah, it, I agree. It, it's it's a very grim, you know, ending. It's a it's a very you know grim view of humanity, um, but I I love that. Mm. I, I love that he's able to tell that story, and tell it so beautifully at times. Um, anchored by a, an incredible performance by Bradley Cooper, I would I would rank it above his performance in in Licorice Pizza. But but. But uh, he's he's doing some he's pushing himself. I, th- mm-hmm. I think it's one of his his best performances. Um, but you've just got an all star cast. Like everybody in the cast is outstanding. Willem Dafoe, you know, Kate Blanchett, Rooney Mara, uh, Ron Perlman. The list goes on and on and on. Um, personally, I'm very interested in like circus culture of the 1920s and 30s. Uh, it's just a subject subject that fascinates me. Um, kind of the human oddities and and this this 
dark world that's you know behind the 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 canvas tent um that fascinates me and it's it's something that if you um saw Guillermo del Toro's touring show Mm. you know that you know he's also very interested in that and is kind of obsessed with with Todd Browning's freaks and I think that that just comes through in the movie um I'm rambling at this point, but <laughs> but uh, it, yeah, it's a beautiful movie, and it, and it left me devastated, and I was so glad that it did. Hmm. Yeah, it's it's. I hope one day to have a second home for all my movie crap like he does. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. yeah, I saw the touring show, and I saw a lot of elements of like yeah, his love for that culture in the movie. This is one for me that I sat with for a little bit because I didn't know how to feel about it. You know, I filmed even like a first reaction and I put it up on, on YouTube because I was like, I I don't know how I feel about this movie right now. And it took me three, four days to fall fully in love with it. And I think part of that is just when going into a film like that with expectations. And I think this is probably one of the worst trailers for a movie because it doesn't sell the movie we're getting. And that's why I had to ruminate on it for a bit because I expected Del Toro's horror i expected his fantasy elements and it's not that it's it's no fantasy in the film it's not about the fantasy it's about the faux fantasy if you will uh and it's also a movie that the trailer gives away the final moments pretty obviously throughout the trailer so you're kind of like stuck in this realm of you know what what did i get on screen and, and how can i judge the art that i saw not the art that i expected and that's why it took me a couple of days to really sit with for a while I, I'm fascinated with the movie. I went back to see it again, which going back to the theater twice to see the same movie is not something I do that often because there's plenty of other options. And as you pointed out, like you know, going back during a pandemic is not something I wanted to do. So I actually waited till 15 minutes before the movie started and bought a ticket in an empty theater because I knew I could go watch it again. Then. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, it's one that I think maybe maybe about 20 minutes longer than it needed to be. I think it sits with, and part of me will always love the circus first half of the film over what we get in the second half, because that culture does interest me more. Um, but I was never, I was never bored by the movie. And I kept like having this little like mental checklist of like, oh, I know all these actors are in this movie. When are we going to get to see so-and-so? And it's nicely spread out with lots of different performances in the movie. Um, yeah, it's, it's a downer. It's a real downer, and I love when real downers actually work because they're tough to pull off to make someone care about a movie when it just hits you so hard, and that's what this one does on a consistent level. Everything is a downer, not just the ending. So I was in love with it, um, but I just had to sit with it for a bit because I was so incredibly confused. Yeah, that's that's understandable, and I've heard from other people as well that they felt it was long. I don't, I don't know. Personally, I feel... I, I didn't have that reaction uh, only because I feel like the 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 game is sort of set from the outset where mm. um, you know that it's going to be a tragedy yeah. and you know where he's going to end up. And th- granted, there's a there's a point in the movie where, you know, it's it's two years later and you can sort of fill in the blanks of what what's happened and and things slow down and sort of get into a different groove. Um, so I think that's kind of where the movie loses some people. Yeah. It either um, lose you or gains you at that moment, right. you know? And, and the one point I would, I guess, disagree with you uh, about is this fantasy element where it's, it's not a fantasy in the sense that he's introducing, you know, a fawn or something like that. <laughs> um, but it's a cinematic fantasy in the sense that he's taking us to a world that can only exist in cinema. Oh, exactly. Um, yes. No, I agree on that. Mm-hmm. And, and, and 
all the production design and all just the, the costumes and the lighting, particularly in the second half, um, take us into this world that can only, uh, this noir world that can only exist in movies. Mm-hmm. And that really can only exist in a Guillermo del Toro movie. Because mm-hmm. even noir movies didn't look like this. Um, True. Uh, you know, there's never been quite a, as a beautiful noir movie as this. And, and just all the again all the production value and the, the 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 lighting and the atmosphere to it it's so um it's so transportive and it feels like despite not having fantasy elements that you feel like you're in this other world uh, mm-hmm. which is which is a fascinating experience yeah the the filmmaking fantasy worked really well for me it's more just that I, I guess when you're so used to i mean a dozen movies that he's made i kept waiting for like are those tarot cards going to come back and mean something because I haven't read the book. I hadn't seen the original film. So I was a bit like I was a detective sleuthing through this film and I kept wondering like where those elements were going to come into play. And specifically because they don't come into play in the way I expected them to, that's kind of the point in some ways too. So I thought it was a movie that I I really want to watch it now a third time. I want to show my wife this movie because she was dying to see it and just wasn't available when I was going to go. So I'm excited to show this movie to other people. And I think it was one of the last movies that was floating in my 10 where I was like, I just, I just can't. And it went to like number 11, like just recently, but I can't fight anybody for loving the movie. It's just one where I think the trailer sells you a different movie. And I had to wrap my head around the movie I got as opposed to the movie that I was thinking it would be. Because it's a very different film. This is why you should never watch trailers. trailers I try are... to avoid them, but we go to the movies all the time. They play on the, yeah. the screen. I don't yeah. think I ever watched the trailer for this movie. I had the trailer play in front of me <laughs> a sure, lot of times. Sure. Yeah. Uh, yeah, those trailers are lies. Um, just flat out lies yeah. in a lot of cases. I mean, even like thinking about uh, Licorice Pizza, there's there's a shot from the trailer where where, uh, where Bradley Cooper's character is like knocking off. Yeah, it, and it's it's in the credits. Squeegees. Yeah, it's in the credits, <laughs> but it's not in the movie. And yeah. and my wife and I were talking about it afterward. Like, oh, I, I, you know, it's odd that that was in the credits and not in the movie. And that's like an image that the trailer ended on, I think. Which, it's just like him like knocking off like and screaming and it's like such a funny image in the trailer but yeah i was waiting for the whole movie for that scene to come into play (laughs) i i almost appreciate the pandemic a little bit because you didn't get to see unless you went out of your way to watch trailers uh you didn't have to have to see them in the theater um Mm -hmm. because there was no theater to go to and going back to the theater now yeah you're forced to to see I've seen this trailer for Cyrano so many times at this point. Oh, I know. I know that song that they sing in the, the trailer right, by gets, heart practically. <laughs> it gets stuck in my head, head and I haven't even seen the movie yet. But um, anyway, yeah. Trailers are lies. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Avoid trailers. Go see movies. Because I think the, that's the most fun I have is when I go see something I know nothing about. I know the title yeah. and I know that people have told me I'll like it. So I'm going to go check it out, you know? Yeah. Um, all right, yeah, no, my number four is the one where you're going to flip a table, everyone <laughs> listening, um, because I, I maybe can't defend why I love this movie as much as I do, but I maybe watched it a half dozen times this year, which is more than I can say about any other film on this list. Um, it is a sequel to a legacy sequel to my favorite horror movie ever, and it is Halloween Kills. And I understand that the movie is imperfect, but what I really appreciate about it is that I walked into Halloween 2018 thinking, okay, we've eliminated all these other sequels that I've spent my childhood on. What are you going to give me? And I felt that Halloween 2018 was a very well-made movie that gave us pretty much the same thing that we'd seen in all the other films. What I appreciate about Halloween Kills is that it's probably the most unique direction for this series to take 
following up on the, a, a pretty standard 2018 film. I like that it showcases Haddonfield as a town for the first time ever as a town, not just as a bunch of people in the town, but we feel the trauma of a town living with a dangerous past for decades. And it really comes to a head. And yes, you can tell me that like the evil dies tonight thing is repetitive to the point of, of fallacy. But I think I would argue that this is how Americans in 2021 would probably react to a serial killer inside their town. You know, people do stupid things when they're confronted with, with danger. You know, the reason why we, we joke about the, the, you know, attractive woman running back up the staircase when the killer is coming is because people do stupid things when they get in these situations. And I think this is a bunch of people in town dealing with a trauma, making some really dumb calls. And that frustrates us as viewers because we're, we're sitting here in our nice, clean home in our safe place. We got our security on around the house. No one's going to come and murder us in our sleep. But that's why it's different, I guess, to me. So I understand a lot of the faults with the movie, but I'm just so fascinated with the unrelenting anger and frustration in this town coming to a head with probably the the most mean and uh dangerous michael myers interpretation yeah uh i i hated this i know you did (laughs) i hated this movie um part of it is and and i'm glad i'm glad you like it i i I, i'm not going to argue against you know and try to convince you otherwise maybe i'll just kind of just explain why i don't like it part of it is is the crass commercial nature of the Halloween franchise, mm-hmm. which having just watched Halloween H2O again last night for, for <laughs> a review request that I got on my website, um, they've just been doing the same things mm-hmm. for 20 years, which is just trying to repeat the magic of the first one. Mm-hmm. Even, even, you know, the first sequel was trying to do that. Oh yeah. And the, their over-reliance and while I appreciate what you're saying that, you know, they're trying to do something different, they're showing Haddonfield. It's, it's still the same thing over and over again. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's just that kind of crass commercialism that I just buckle against. Um, I will say that, you know, I revisited the 2018 one before this one and I thought it was better than I thought it was originally. And I will probably, if I watch this one in two years or whenever the, whenever the last Halloween movie comes out, um, I'll, I'll probably appreciate it a little bit more and just enjoy it on a purely entertainment level mm-hmm. as opposed to something I need to sit down and write a review of. Um, but I don't know. I, I just found they didn't develop the characters very well. They kind of forgot about the daughter or yeah, the daughter character slash granddaughter character, mm-hmm. I guess. Um, really forgot about Jamie Lee Curtis. She's just tied up in a hospital bed the whole time. Um, I don't know. It just felt inorganic to me. Um, and following, yes, you're following a throng more than you're following like a character. And I, I felt like the movie existed to set up to like, set up the ending, <laughs> set up the ending, set up kills, uh, very violent kills, which also felt wrong to me. Um, I don't know. I, I just didn't respond to it as 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 highly as other people did and this is probably one of the more divisive horror movies that came out in 2021 Mm -hmm. people tend to really love it or tend to really hate it yep and i think Um, there is more hatred on it than love like i i I see the way people respond to it yeah Uh, and i honestly can't i can't tell you it's better than Candyman. i just enjoyed watching it more than Candyman, which puts it a little bit higher but and it's weird to say that halloween kills is my feel-good movie of the year because i watch it when i'm having a bad day and it makes me feel really good i don't know yeah i mean Um, i feel the same way about you know psycho gorman 
band. So we all have our, our peculiar tastes and things that make us make us happy, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I don't know. I just I, I found the the tone. I'm surprised that you say that it makes you happy, actually, because the tone of it is so grim and so I don't know fatalistic and kind of cruel at times. Yeah, the, it's the, great. <laughs> yeah, <okay. laughs> yeah, that's fair. Um, so anyway. All right, yeah, let's move on to your number three. Uh, my number three is uh, Pedro Almodovar's Parallel Mothers. Um, this is... So Pedro Almodovar has made a lot of movies that are kind of addressing the, the, the crimes of the of the Spanish Civil War and uh, Francisco Franco's regime um, indirectly. Mm. He's doing it symbolically a lot. Uh, Volvera is a movie, for instance, that uh, very symbolically addresses kind of the crimes of the past and digging up those crimes and and um, confronting them. Um, Bad Education is another one. This is the first time where he has directly confronted it and made it a, a topic of his his film uh it starts out as uh penelope cruz and melena smith um both get pregnant at the same time and uh start to raise their children kind of in separate segments uh they end up coming back together and um without revealing anything it leads them into um unearthing mass graves mm-hmm. um, from the Spanish Civil War where where uh, Penelope Cruz's uh, great-grandfather was buried. Um, Penelope Cruz gives an incredible performance. She is very usually underutilized in Hollywood movies. Um, she's usually just, you know, kind of a, a, a hot foreign woman uh from you know hollywood's perspective uh you know they just kind of throw her in there like a pirates of the caribbean movie or or whatever um she's she doesn't often get a a in-depth performance whereas in almodovar movies um you see what a brilliant actress she can be and i think this is might be her best performance Hmm. um i would be shocked if she didn't get an oscar nomination uh i i personally think it's maybe the best female performance of the year Hmm. um She's incredible. I mean, I was in tears by the end. Uh, Almodovar's direction is is less uh, flamboyant and and kind of uh, calling attention to itself than than his other films. But um, he's kind of gotten calmed down a little bit, I guess, in his old age. Um, but it's also one of his most um, emotionally sound movies uh, and mature movies that uh, he's ever made. Um, if you've seen uh, Pain and Glory, the last movie he made, um, it's even more kind of straightforward than that, uh, and that was a relatively straightforward movie for Almodovar. Um, but it, it's just a it's it's a beautifully composed, uh, undeniably Almodovar movie, uh, but just dealing with some very uh, serious material in in his way, which is to say, it's at times funny, it's at times romantic. Um, but in the end really addresses something that he's been sort of, he's had a relationship with throughout his career, um, whether he was denying kind of denying the existence or sort of, um, suppressing the, the, the reality of, of Francisco Franco and sort of, you know, partying despite it early in his career, um, or just using it as a metaphor later in his career, uh, He's, he's addressing it for the first time, and he's doing it in a way that uh, really got to me. Hmm. 
Fantastic. Yeah. When you said, you know, Penelope Cruz in, in Hollywood, I think Zoolander 2 and Pirates of the Caribbean right. on Stranger Tides, where it's just like, oh, she's beautiful. We'll put her next to the, the funny person as an added bonus, you know? Right. And that's that's true. Her best work is in movies that are, are not making a billion dollars, you know? <laughs> right. So, yeah, I definitely agree. Um, I, this was a movie I wanted to see, and I think three different attempts. This movie did not want to be seen by me, um, because three different attempts I made to go to uh, a screening for it or to try and catch it when I could, and I was just car trouble weather hit me and then COVID test had to sit at home. So I've missed out on every opportunity I've had to see this movie. I'm looking forward to seeing it. Um, Almodovar is someone I haven't delved as far into as I would like. My first film seeing it was Pain and Glory. And then um, uh, The Skin I Live In was the second one. So, I mean, that's that's really all I have. I enjoyed both films. I can't wait to see this one. Um, it's a. It seems like a really seems like a really I like that his movies start out as one thing and kind of evolve into something greater which is always surprising so all right my number three uh, another recent watch for me something I put off because I had to go get COVID tested missed it in theaters and that was uh, David Lowry's The Green Knight Um, I have read the short story that this film is based on 50 times because every writing class and every reading class I took from the time I was five to the time I graduated college had us read the story again. So I know it pretty well. Um, I like that David Lowry uh, adds his extra Lowry's to it. He, you know, he puts his kind of a spin on the film. It's a very different interpretation of the source material than I'm used to. Um, you know, we, we get the st- story of Gawain, uh, facing off against the green knight on Christmas. And yes, it's a Christmas movie and then being challenged to come back and, and face him again a year later. And it's a movie about a guy that just is not willing to be brave, be bold. And he kind of wants to be the knight that he thinks that he sees himself as, but he is, he's not strong enough. And coming to terms with that is his character journey throughout the film, which is something I had not read into upon like beginning the film. It was something that was very well layered in. It's got a lot of other fantastical, interpretations and layers to it from other myths of the time. It just is a very enjoyable and yet a very haunting uh, visual feast. And I I was fascinated with it throughout. Uh, I agree with the visual feast part. I thought it was a very beautiful movie. Um, I just didn't feel anything Mm. during it. Um, I get that sometimes with uh, Lowry. Um, His, the, what was it? Ghost story? Ghost story. Yeah. I, 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 Again, I didn't feel anything really toward that. I felt like it was a very um, mannerist style in the in the sense that he's I, I don't know something about his his aesthetic just leaves me at a distance. Whereas, strangely, uh, his Pete's Dragon is like the most devastating movie I've ever seen in my life. Like I, I cried. It was like a weepy mess after that movie. Oh. But but uh, for whatever reason, his more um, I don't want to say arty, but more austere movies, I guess, uh, just leave me cold. Mm. And um, and th- this one was the same. But I know a lot of people love it, and uh, I-, I can't, you know, blame you. It's a it's a beautiful looking movie. Yeah, I think if the subject matter were different, I think I would maybe feel different because yeah, his tone is very it's cold. It's not for everybody. Just certain people will watch the film, and no matter how good it is, they're just gonna not feel connected to it. And I can understand that. So yeah, you know that's it divisive in a different way i guess <laughs> yeah, absolutely absolutely all right let's what, what's your number two uh my number two is quo vadis ida mm. um this is a bosnian film uh by director yasmila zabanik i'm not sure if i'm saying that right i'm probably not uh but it's about the uh 1995 massacre or sabrinka massacre again i'm not saying that right probably i apologize everyone um 
so basically this is a movie following a a bosnian u.n representative who is kind of seeing her hometown uh torn apart by um the bosnian serb army that is rounding up muslims and putting them into a camp and eventually will will execute them as as history shows but you're following this uh this main character um who it's an it's an incredible performance uh and you're just you're following her from moment to moment in such an uh, an immersive um beautiful aesthetic that's that's reminds me of like schindler's list mm. where you're in the moment and things are oddly oddly beautiful like the way that they're shot it's you know you can't fault the beauty in in the imagery but the subject matter is so grim mm-hmm. um and the director just takes you from one moment to the next and you're just watching a horror show unfold before you. Um, and then there's this amazing little coda that takes place, I think a year after kind of the main events um, that just leaves you with a sense of how the country is, he has chosen to heal, which is almost more disturbing in some ways than, than what happened before. Mm. Um, it, it, it's a movie that was nominated for um, uh, best international feature. Uh, came out technically in 2021, but it was, but it was uh, one of these weirder movies that one we were talking holdovers. about, where, where, mm-hmm. where it was lumped into this recent ceremony. Um, barely seen by any anyone, I think. But because um, um, uh, <laughs> um, um but uh, I strongly urge people to seek it out. It was uh, it was just a devastating movie, and I feel like that's maybe an uh, unintentional theme of my list. That you know, th- just movies that leave you devastated. But I can't. I haven't been able to shake this movie since I saw it back back in March or April, and um, it's it's uh, it's something where you know I I I was in my teens when you know the Bosnian War was going on. And I didn't really know much about it. And I've done some reading about it since then. But um, this prompted kind of a deep dive into Bosnian history and culture. And um, and then I revisited the movie again. And it was just, it, it captures it captures something where, you know, the media didn't cover it a whole lot. It seemed like another world probably to people in the U.S. Mm. Um, and far removed. And, and frankly, you know, if Muslims are being slaughtered, we have a, American culture as a way of, you know, just not caring about that sort of thing. Um, Yeah. You know, stuff is going on right now in the world where we're Mm -hmm. just kind of, uh, you know, turning our heads to it. But uh, this is a movie I think that really confronts uh, the subject in a, in a, in a grim, but emotionally urgent way that, uh, as I said, follows the main character um, from one event to the next in, in a way that just kind of gets you wrapped up and caring about it everything that's going on. Yeah. I think it's a movie that uh, even with its coda, I don't, I abandon all hope ye who enter. It's, it's a movie that is very, very painful to watch. So well made. I like your comparison to Schindler's List. That's what this movie is. It's, it's a comparison piece that I would never suggest as a double feature um, because it is just a hard hitting movie. I saw it last year for the, for the Oscar prep and, and yeah, it does stay with you for a while. And every one time someone brings it up, I'm like, yes, it is amazing. And I I don't really want to watch it anytime soon, but it's fantastic. Um, I'm going to flip the script here and talk about a conflict that, uh, in a movie that's a much lighter uh, fare, and that is my number two film, Belfast, from uh, Kenneth Branagh. I I didn't really know what to expect with this. Branagh and me have very 
hit or miss relationships. I'm sure a lot of people do with his where he makes these big budget movies and he does these smaller films. And I just don't know which ones are going to connect with me and which ones aren't. This was a another very different feel good movie than Halloween Kills for me. But it was a feel good movie in a number of ways because it presents a conflict. It presents it all from a a childlike perspective. I don't think there's a bad performance in the entire film. You could maybe make the the argument that it's it's fluff. You know, there's a, there's a lot of fluff to it. The substance itself doesn't reach as high as the style. But I just felt myself enamored with this movie that I, I consider to be flawless. I can't find a problem with the movie as it is given to me. Um, Jude Hill is a, a fantastic little performer on on the list here, and he's able to hold his own against you know some pretty high end uh, performers. Judy Dench is in the film. Sharon Hines, uh, Jamie Dornan, who I think Jamie Dornan had a one two punch with this and and Barb and Star this year, where he's just singing on film and we're loving it. And then Katrina Balfe, who I was in love with from Outlander, and getting to see her in in other films like Ford versus Ferrari, and this one uh, just showcases the wide talent that she has. I just think it's a very performance driven, enjoyable movie for some of the darker matter that it actually treads through. Yeah, um, I liked it. I thought it was fine, uh, and I, I, I agree. I, th- I think what prevents me from loving it, and I do tend to like Kenneth Branagh movies, um, probably in the first half of his career more than his second half. Um, you know, I like his, I like his Shakespeare adaptations, <laughs> and not so much his Jack Ryan Shadow Recruit. <laughs> yeah. um, <laughs> but I don't know. I, I think what prevented me from loving it was that it was. Um, light so light mm-hmm. um and they're dealing with maybe maybe it's because i've just seen so many irish movies that that deal with that conflict um with so much more seriousness that this felt like it wasn't really addressing like how 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 just how violent and just mm-hmm. how awful that was um and i guess you know so, I'm not trying to rag on on no, your pick. No, but, please do. But, <laughs> it's but okay. I, I think the perspective aspect, you know, you're in in a child's perspective for the most part. But there are scenes without the the child in them mm-hmm. where I felt like, whose perspective is this, and why are we getting this information right now? Mm-hmm. Um, so it, little just inconsistencies like that prevented me from loving it, and maybe uh, s- stuck in my craw a little bit. Um, but I, I do tend to prefer his, you know, he he kind of lives by the one for one for me, one for them yep. rule. Um, doing big Hollywood movies, and then I, I tend to like his his movies that are for him mm-hmm. uh, a lot more. Um, so I, I I thought it was good. I just I I don't know. I I wanted it to be more. I think. Mm. See, and I felt yeah the scenes where he's not in the film. I only I felt that they had to kind of purvey like his interpretation of how that scene would have gone from his because I, I agree with you in that sense but if you had shown something completely flipped the script from an adult perspective i feel like tonally would have just like kind of killed the narrative right. but yeah i kind of agree with you in a sense in that that way where like we do get scenes without him that feel like they should be a little bit more hard hit but i felt the entire thing was like a, a child's memory and sure. so yeah i can totally get that, that yeah you know the way that viewpoint is and i've heard a lot of people say it's good okay you know move on you know sure, sure. but uh it, it definitely has stayed with me and it's one that i again i will be calling people to get them to watch it with me um yeah it's been on a lot of um like best lists um I, i've seen it be on a few best lists yep i think that's because um, it gets love but it doesn't get hate like there's no like true hate to the movie right in terms yeah. of like this was awful there's nothing awful about the movie it just works in a, an accessibility range yep so absolutely perfect all right well it's it's time what's it's number time. one um so i saw I wrote this down. I reviewed about a hundred or so movies this year. 
according to Letterboxd, I saw about 700 movies, which is way too many. Um, and none stuck with me so much uh, or felt so weird or felt so uh, unlike anything I've ever seen than Teton. Okay. Um, so this is uh, the Palme d'Or winner from, from this year uh, by director Julia Ducorno. Uh, it's a French film. Uh, she, it's, it's got a few hints of, of David Cronenberg, but, uh, I think that's, that's very low level, you know, comparison. Um, it's a little bit like crash, but not really. Um, if you've heard about this movie, you've probably heard it described as the woman or the movie where the woman has sex with a car. And I think that's such a reduced response to this movie. Um, there's a lot of sensationalism going on in this movie. There's a lot of things that will shock and make you cringe and squirm in your seat. Um, but I think that's part of its agenda. Uh, its agenda is very specific. It's kind of this odd reconception of gender roles, of binarism, of, of traditionalism. Um, so, so basically the story is, is a, a woman who's, who strips at car shows, uh, has sex with a car, uh, gets pregnant. Uh, she's also a serial killer, um, killing people with a hairpin. She hides, <laughs> she hides from the police dressing as a boy, um, beats her face. So she looks, you know, a little, little rag and more boyish, um, gets in a relation relationship, a weird sort of father son relationship with a firefighter. Who's the, a beacon of masculinity seemingly. Um, and they develop this sort of tender, tender relationship. Uh, meanwhile, she's going to give birth to a machine baby type thing, uh, which all sounds very kind of absurd when you put it the way that I just did. Um, yeah. <laughs> and, and yet, uh, this is a, this is a movie that is constantly challenging all of those definitions. Mm-hmm. Um, it's challenging the definition of a of a auto stripper of a firefighter it's uh questioning you know these these masculine identities much like uh power of the dog does um and by the end it's challenging you to feel something that you wouldn't expect to feel um towards something that's different mm-hmm. and i think what's so beautiful about it is not only that it it evokes a reaction out of you or rather provokes a reaction out of you uh through its imagery and through its just sheer kind of visceral uh representation of of violence and and bodies being damaged um but it's also just challenging you to feel something um toward characters that are not what you're used to seeing Mm. um this is just such exciting filmmaking that uh, takes chances and really embraces its own messiness. Um, I think it is kind of a messy movie at times, um, but in a way that makes a weird kind of sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's it's important to embrace these kind of movies when you know the multiple multiplexes are just dominated with you know Big Mac cinema. Mm-hmm. This is something that you you'll never see another movie like this, yeah. um, and you'll you'll never. you've never seen a movie like this and you will never see another movie like this. Like it's so, it's so strange and I, and it's very well made and very well acted and all the, you know, all the boxes are checked there, but it's, it's such a, it's, it's a movie that made me feel so much like in terms of appreciation of just its craft and its performances and where it goes and what it does and what it's saying about, um, about difference and 
how difference is cherishable, uh, despite being, you know, in its nature deviant. Um, I, I loved all those pieces of it. Mm. And in a year that's, you know, dominated at the box office by Marvel movies and stuff, I just, I feel like this is, this is a movie where I not only feel good about supporting, but I, I feel like, God, if we only had, you know, five more of these in a year, um, film would go somewhere yeah. instead of just, you know, recycling itself. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is a film that absolutely isn't recycling anything. That's fair. That's good. Yeah. I, I think with uh, the comparison I make with it is uh, to Del Toro's Pan's Labyrinth, because I felt something in this film that I didn't feel since then, which was the ability for a storyteller in film to showcase things that are so not normal, but allow you the, the ability to accept them within the narrative confines of the film, because sure. there's a ton of things that happen in this movie that you could on surface level, like when we say the woman bangs a car and she's having some sort of creature like, okay, but it also tells you like, that's what this movie is deal with it. Cause we're not stopping for it. And that's kind of what I felt when the fawn shows up in pants labyrinth It's like, we're, we're telling a very, you know, n- you know, normal war torn story here. There's just, there's a fawn and just move on. That's what's happening. And I felt like that kind of comparison at play here where it teaches you acceptance about like not every movie needs to hit all of the narrative boxes that we expect it to. This is the story that we're given and it allows us within those confines to breathe a lot of our own self into it. Sure. I, I think the difference maybe for me between Pan's Labyrinth and, and Titan is that Titan is ha- actually happening. And yeah. I, th- I think there's a strong argument to be made that in Pan's Labyrinth, there is no fun. Yeah. Um, and there is no fantasy. It's just all in the girl's head. Mm-hmm. Um, this and and it's safer that way. Oh yeah, yeah. You know, like you can compa- like you can compartmentalize this as a as a psychological trauma just sort of working itself out in in fantasy land. Yeah. Whereas Titan is like brutally confronting you with the the reality of her her stomach ripping you know ripping because she's yeah. got some sort of uh, titanium you know womb inside of her. Uh, a- anyway, I, I th- that's the splitting hairs, I guess, but. Um, <laughs> Yeah, it is confronting you in a way that you can't. You, you like you said, you just have to accept that this is what's happening within the narrative yep. and go with it. And because um, I didn't question it once when it was happening in the film, right. I was like, "Well, okay, this is our story. Let's <laughs> right. let's keep going. Let's see what let's see what happens next." Yeah. Uh, I the only thing that I would say about it is that I think I preferred Raw, uh, Ducournau's sure. previous film, and that one that one hit all those boxes for me. Where again, like it gives you this like, "Oh, she's she's eating people." Okay. That's our story. We're going with it. Uh, I don't know why, but the the more simplistic angle of Raw, where it's it's very layered, but it's a pretty straightforward narrative. Yeah, I felt like that carried me in a little bit more. But I can't deny the the tenacity on display with with Titan. It's 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 incredible, um, and it won't be recognized at the end of the year. No. And that's that's the way it is. But I think it's going to have an undercurrent that stays with people for maybe the next decade, where people are going to be talking about it, comparing new films to it. Um, and asking why we don't see more of it. Yeah, so. absolutely. But my number one is going to completely shatter those expectations because it is a big budget studio tent pole. Uh, it's a movie that I, I, again, didn't know what to think about before going to see it. I was, uh, I'm a fan of this style of film. And I hate to, to give the, the top spot to a uh, studio-created machine, but it is a studio-created machine that I have zero flaws with. And that's Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings. 
uh, director Destin Daniel Cretton. I was really, really brought into Just Mercy uh, with his filmmaking technique there. I love Just Mercy so much. I like those kind of courtroom films. Um, and then I like that we get these big studios that are taking these smaller directors who have made these really intimate stories and they're allowing them to play. And sometimes they work really well, like I think this film does. Sometimes they're a little bit messier, like The Eternals was, where it's, you know, but you're letting these these directors with vision actually go forth and make a movie. Um, I love the choreography. I love Wuxia in, in cinema. So I really, really, like, I was already predisposed to enjoying this film, but I like the choreography and I like the cultural aesthetics where it plays with kind of a a amalgam of several different cultures and creating a new cultural, like, touchstone to it. It feels like like it's doing for Asian culture in cinema, what black Panther did for black culture in cinema. Um, I really, really enjoy Tony Leung. So, I mean, I, I have trouble not loving him and everything, um, but he's a great villain where he's an understandable villain. I think Simu Liu, uh, who I'd not seen anything before this film uh, owns the screen. He's captivating. He's enjoyable. He's a likable person who is, flawed um you might say that you know he's one of those guys who we don't know his power level in films like you know he's maybe too strong for his own good for someone who's avoided this um and i also have to say the way it translates elements of a story that i really liked in iron man 3 and the way it brings and bridges those mythological gaps without just hitting that movie over the head because i loved iron man 3 i was the, the person who was like stop talking about these other movies that don't swing for the fences and start talking about the big budget movies that do and i really loved the story that was told iron man 3 when this one was coming out i was like they're gonna negate everything that i really liked about that movie it's gonna be meaningless i like that we get a closure of that story and something that moves forward and again it's gonna come down to it i got to go to the cinema this year um and and i missed 15 and a half months of that I can't tell you how sad 2020 was month after month when I was like, I'm still not going back to the movies. And I knew other people that are and good for them, but I just can't do it. And so to be able to sit down in the theater with popcorn in my hand and watch something that just mesmerized me from beginning to end in a movie that I, I again, have no flaws with and one that I, I will tell everybody I know this is like one of the best character driven big budget tent poles that you can get. I just can't. I have, I have no problems with Shang-Chi. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I liked it. Uh, I did see it in the theater. Um, it was, uh, I think, my wife and I and maybe one other person on like a weeknight, three weeks after it opened. But mm. um, And, you know, maybe that affected it. But um, uh, my experience, because I think, you know, Marvel movies do tend to play better with... They're better in the big, w- yeah. With, with crowds. Um, and, you know, you get that kind of communal response. Um, I liked it. I think where... I sort of the marvelness of it sort of bugged me, I guess, in the last maybe twenty minutes. Where I think after um, a certain point, it's just CGI. CGI mockup. <laughs> yeah, like like it's just I, I get I get what's called CGI blindness, right? I don't even know what's going on. Like there are just things swirling around, and I I don't know what's happening. <laughs> mm. And, and um, I, I sound like an old man probably right now, but I I just I just tune out i guess mm-hmm. when there's not human beings uh, uh on the screen or when the human beings become cgi like yep. like I, I just recently rewatched the matrix reloaded and revolutions and there there are those moments where like neo and and the agent smith's fight and it's all oh, you're just you're Bunch just watching a video game you know yeah um so I, I think, you know, I really liked the movie up until the last 20 minutes, and I wish that last fight just didn't happen, mm. um, and I thought it would have been a more um, compelling movie. Um, I agree with you completely about Iron Man 3. I do mm-hmm. think it's kind of the best of the three. 
Um, <laughs> I do too. <laughs> uh, I, I, I really love that Shane, that Shane Black could do what he did there. And you get a sense that um, the writers had a little bit of free reign on this movie. Um, I do wish, I feel like Aquafina stole the show. Okay. Um, from I can't fight that, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and I think, you know, just Marvel leading men are just kind of like, like bags of meat at times. Yeah. Um, it's nice to see a bit of a break where we, we do see some females like get rising up to at least the same level. Sometimes they get their own movie, but they're at least on the level a little bit more. It's nice to see again, a different perspective yeah. to that yeah. formula, you know? Uh, but yeah, I, I, I did like the movie. I, I haven't, it's the one Marvel movie that I saw in the theater this year. Mm. Um, I, I saw Black Widow, you know, at home. Uh, just wasn't ready to go into the theater at that point. I I skipped Eternals. I'm going to wait till it comes in on Disney Plus. Got a I just, couple weeks. I, <laughs> yeah, right. A couple of weeks now, but uh, I just didn't. It just didn't look that good to me. And I haven't had uh, uh, a chance to see the new Spider-Man yet. Mm. But um, have you seen? I have. It's it's great, but it's also it's nostalgic reach is a little bit higher than sure. it's, than it's narrative reach. I can't flaunt. It's one of the best experiences I've had in the theater. Yeah. But if I'm going to look at like, people are talking Spider-Man, uh, no way home. Like, let's get that. Let's get that. Um, you know, a best picture nom. If you're going to give one to it, give it to Shang-Chi. Cause at least it does something unique. It means something to a culture. Right. But, uh, but yeah. I, yeah. I liked all the different fighting styles. Like they're different, definitely like embracing, you know, Hong Kong action movie or, you know, Jackie Chan style action movie or, or Wuxia movie. Um, yeah, so that that was interesting. Perfect. Well, there you go. You got two very different lists, and like I said, I think we both agreed on things we liked and things we didn't like. But the amount of liking and disliking was was where our, our list kind of altered, and we got we got one crossover. So I was halfway to, to my goal, but uh, <laughs> maybe next year, maybe next year. Uh, well, Brian, it was fantastic having you on the show with me, uh, joining me for this uh, Nicholas episode, um, and we'll look forward to hearing more of his voice next year. But uh, for right now, I guess where can we find you out and about? Uh, I am at uh, deepfocusreview.com on Twitter. I'm at deep focus review uh i've also got a patreon uh which is just patreon slash deep focus review um you know if you join patreon you can request reviews um you get to vote every week on what i'm reviewing on the main site otherwise uh you can request a review of your own choice depending on what tier you're at um a lot of a lot of i'm posting something three or four times a week uh on on patreon so it's it's quite a, a wealth of material on there um yeah, that's where I'm at. Fantastic. Yeah, and you can find my show, Kyle and Nick on Film, with episodes Mondays, Thursdays, and Saturdays. Our new season four begins on January 10th with new episodes, but you can catch our backlog. We've got about 160, 170 episodes available on YouTube right now. The link's down in the description. Um, and check out patreon.com slash Kyle Nick on Film for more information on how you can select movies that we do on our rotation for Patreon selections. Um, my favorite thing is getting movies that I want to see but need an excuse to see and our patrons give us that option as well you can also find uh, my film reviews on goatfilmreviews.com um, you can follow me online at almighty goatman on twitter and instagram and check out my letterboxd if you want spoiler alert my thoughts on the many movies that i do see um, you can check me out there as well and don't forget as well uh, tweet at uh, at st paul filmcast with your top 10 movies of the year as well let's get that conversation going because i think all three of us can agree uh, nick myself and brian we love the conversation almost as much as we love the cinema itself. Uh, so thank you so much for joining us, everybody. And we'll see you in 2022 with more top 10 lists and all sorts of goodness. Thanks. Oh, no.